All right, everybody, January down. Here we go in February. It is Wednesday, February 1st. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. She's back, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) To join me in reading all the news and reading between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, how are you feeling? I'm feeling a little bit better. Um, You know, I guess after two weeks of my daughter literally sneezing in my mouth, I I got sick. (laughs) I know that sounds disgusting, but... Wait, how old is is your daughter? Just to clarify for everyone listening. Four 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 in a couple months. Yeah. So what did I miss? Um, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. I listen to the podcast. <laughs> there's been there's been some news. Uh, this is actually probably in news terms the quietest day so far this week. But we still have a lot ahead for you today, and I'm glad to have you back, Jill. All right, let's get to it. A lot of economic numbers out as the Fed meets again to raise interest rates. We're going to break it all down, including some really interesting numbers on how many more single women are owning homes than single men. Alec Baldwin officially charged in the death of the onset cinematographer. We've got the latest in the legal fight. Another revelation in the Joe Biden classified document scandal. I mean, <laughs> what Jill, else? Jill, Jill, you didn't miss anything. You didn't miss anything. It's just basically, as Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. <laughs> it's the story that just won't go away. Um, how are those New Year's resolutions coming? We've got some new information on what types of workouts are trending at a gym near you. On the other end of the spectrum, a new study on the number of Americans that researchers think are actually addicted to sugar and processed food and Mosh has on this day in history jill today is devoted to the halftime show incident we're still talking about 19 years later i'm talking about a certain wardrobe malfunction okay let's start with the economy here some new signs that the housing market is continuing to cool u.s home prices have dropped for a fifth month in a row in november according to the case shiller index It comes as rising mortgage rates make homes a lot more expensive for buyers, pushing many out of the market entirely. July 2022 saw the first month-over-month decrease for the national index in more than a decade, and that continued all the way through November. We should note home prices are still sky high. They're up about 7.7% in November from the year prior. Miami, Atlanta, and Tampa had the biggest price jumps. Miami had an 18.4% price increase from the year prior. But Motion Economist tells CNN that she thinks talks of a major market correction is really just overblown. She says, quote, we may have already seen the bottom of the housing market. Yeah, you saw prices come down just for a few months there, uh, month over month, but then the year over year, as you noted, Jill, still up. Uh, And of course, those numbers are slightly delayed. Those numbers that you just talked about are the numbers as of November. It takes them a while to compile them, et cetera. Already in January, with inflation cooling, brokers across the country, some of them messaging me, are expecting a strong spring for the housing market. Uh, The 30-year mortgage, which a year ago was about 3%-ish, 4%-ish, almost hit 7%, is back down closer to 6%. So they feel buyers are going to be back out there in the market. The brokerage company Redfin pointed to signs that buyer interest already may be picking up. They saw a bunch of deals already on the rise in December. And there are continuing numbers that there's an uptick in consumer confidence. So ever so slightly, if you were trying to wait out this housing market, we might have, as Jill just noted, already seen the bottom. So we're going to continue to monitor that issue for you. At the same time, we're watching the Federal Reserve today. They're having their regular meeting where they're expected to again announce another interest rate hike. This slightly smaller than some of their previous hikes. We're expecting them to take it to between 45 to 4.75%. That is the 
federal rate, but that interest rate impacts mortgage rates, credit cards, uh, car loans, a whole bunch of other uh, interest rates. So every time the Fed takes up their rate, you can expect rates to go up across the board. You'll see those headlines and their decision around 2 p.m. Eastern time today. But it appears the end is in sight. The Fed had expected, as of the last couple months, to only be raising interest rates to about 5% this year. So if they take us to 4.75, we're pretty close to the top. And again, if they raise us by just a quarter percent today, as they're expected to, that'll be the smallest increase since they began raising rates last March. This is their strategy to cool inflation, trying to bring up interest rates, uh, suck money from the economy, and try to come in for what they say is a soft landing, trying to basically cool down the economy, cool down inflation without creating a recession. That's their strategy. So expect to see some more headlines on that today. Back to this issue of home ownership, there's some new numbers out that show single women are far outpacing single men when it comes to owning a home. Single women own roughly 10.7 million homes compared to 8.1 million for single men. This is according to a new analysis from LendingTree. It looked at census data from 2021. Analysts from LendingTree say it's pretty surprising considering that women do face more financial hurdles historically. And it could have huge long-term implications given that home ownership is one of the easiest and most effective ways to build personal wealth long-term. That analysis also looked at a number of reasons, Jill. On the older side of the spectrum, among older women, they have longer life expectations. Women live longer than men, uh, till 81 on average versus 76 for men. So in some cases, that is a factor in uh, women becoming a widow uh, and owning the house that was previously owned by the couple. But some of the interesting numbers I was looking at, Jill, uh, are in regards to younger women who are approaching the peak of their careers, uh, in many cases now earning salaries nearly equal to men their age. They're well aware of the wage and wealth gap that persists between genders um, as the years go on. So buying a home is one way that younger women are trying to counter that wealth gap, especially as they uh, potentially move on to have children, etc. Women today, we should note, are more college educated than men, which also gives them the opportunity to buy a home on their own, since college degrees translate often, typically, to earning more money later in life. Jill, CBS News put up a map of this study, and I find it really interesting. Um, the states where uh, women most outnumber men in homeownership, Florida, nearly 5% more women, single women, own homes than men. South Carolina is above 4%. Alabama is above 4%. Louisiana is above 4%. And so in the South, you see this huge trend line. There are only two states in America where single men own more homes than women, and those are both Dakotas. It's really interesting, motion. I think it's a trend that we're going to see continue. I Within the next few years, they say that for every man that graduates college, two women will graduate college. And yeah. you just have to imagine the impact that that's going to have on the entire economy. There are a number of universities very concerned about this, where they're starting to see two-thirds of their campus are women. So this is translating uh, to a challenge, uh, definitely on college campuses. Uh, and we're seeing how it's unfolding here uh, in the economic uh, space and the housing space. So, uh, Jill, as you were sort of singing to me earlier, all the single ladies put their hands up. All the single ladies, all the single ladies. Moving on, actor Alec Baldwin and an onset weapons specialist have been formally charged with involuntary manslaughter in that fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a New Mexico movie set. 
On Tuesday, the Santa Fe District Attorney filed the charging documents naming Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. She supervised weapons on the set of the movie Rust. The cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, died shortly after being shot with a live round during rehearsals at a ranch on the outskirts of Santa Fe. That was back in October of 2021. Baldwin was pointing a pistol at Hutchins when the gun went off, killing her and wounding the director. Baldwin claims that he was depending on the onset personnel to perform safety checks on the gun, so he didn't check it himself. He also claims that he never pulled the trigger, but an FBI assessment last year found that it would have been impossible for the gun to go off without him pulling the trigger. Prosecutors have said that Baldwin's involvement as a producer and as the person who fired the gun weighed on their decision to file charges. A lot of people watching this very closely, Jill. Baldwin has said that he was told on set that the gun was, quote unquote, cold, meaning it should have contained no live rounds. And he's also added that he was following the direction of Hutchins in where to point the gun. We still have no idea, though, why a live round was in the gun or who put the live round in the gun. But there are definitely questions as to the safety procedures on this set, uh, and that'll certainly come up in trial. As far as what's next, a judge will now have to rule on whether there is probable cause for these charges that were announced yesterday to move forward. In the probable cause statement, investigators said that the scene being rehearsed did not require a weapon to be fired at all. Investigators actually spoke to a bunch of expert armorers who they consulted with and said that in a rehearsal where blanks don't need to be fired, a plastic or replica gun should have been used in this case. Investigators said in court filings that Gutierrez-Reed, she's the other person who's been charged here, repeatedly violated established safety policies and procedures for using firearms in films, including by leaving the rehearsal area when the gun was being used. The DA says in a press release, today we have taken an important step in securing justice. In New Mexico, no one is above the law and justice will be served. Baldwin's attorney did not have anything to say yesterday, but previously said the actor, again, had no reason to think there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on the live set and plans to fight these charges. Another individual, David Halls, he's the film's first assistant director. He's the person who handed the gun to Baldwin. He's agreed to plead no contest to the charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon, which uh, is sure to play a factor here in a potential trial. And just a reminder, Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed facing charges on two different counts of involuntary manslaughter. One charge carries a punishment of up to 18 months in prison. The second charge, involuntary manslaughter and the commission of a lawful act, includes what's called a firearms enhancement, which carries a mandatory five-year prison term. Okay, we have a lot more news to get to in this podcast, but we have some exciting news here at the Mo News Podcast. Two new sponsors this week. One, a great skincare solution. The other, a smart way to get your download of your favorite books or podcasts. I want to start with Blinkist. I've been using the Blinkist app for more than a year now as a way to get quick summaries of books that I want to read but I never quite get to or get quick refreshers of books I just haven't read in a while. It's essentially audio cliff notes. Blinkist gives you basically a read on a book in 15 minutes. I like to listen to them on my commutes or while working out. They offer more than 5,500 books and podcast summaries and a wide range of topics, politics, parenting, communication, leadership, investing. You know those books you see, you might see them at the airport, et cetera, and you're like, I should read that. That would make me a lot smarter. Blinkist provides curated collections and expert-led guides. It helps you grow a little bit every day. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for the Mo News audience. Go to Blinkist.com, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T.com slash Mo News 
to start a seven-day free trial and get 25% off your Blinkist premium membership. Again, that's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-D, like in a blink, Blinkist.com slash Monews to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. And now for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account and you will get two premium subscriptions for the price of one. So again, Blinkist.com slash Monews, check it all out. Okay, I'd like to introduce all of you to Apostrophe, another new Mo News sponsor. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with expert dermatology teams to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. It's very convenient. Apostrophe essentially offers virtual derm consultations, including for acne, dark spots. Sometimes getting a dermatology appointment can take a while. I know I have found that. So this is simple to use and can be done from home. You answer several questions, snap a few selfies, and a board-certified dermatologist will create your initial customized treatment plan. And so they are offering a special deal for the Monews audience. Get your first visit for only $5 over at apostrophe.com slash Monews when you use the code Mo News, you will get a discount also on medication. Again, to get started, just go to apostrophe.com, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E, apostrophe.com slash Mo News, and click to get started and use our code Mo News at sign up. You'll get the first visit for only $5. Okay, time now for the speed read. Let's start abroad. This story from the Washington Post, a suicide bomb on Monday killed more than 100 people in the northwestern Pakistani city of Peshawar devastating a mosque in a supposedly secure sector of the city. The blast signaled the brazen revival of violent tactics by the extremist Pakistani Taliban group, which had once been quelled by a military crackdown and until recently was in peace talks with the government. In the years after 2015, when Pakistani Taliban fighters and other militants were mostly pushed out of the region, many into neighboring Afghanistan, Peshawar residents hoped that the days of terrorist attacks were behind them. But the country of 220 million is now questioning their government's ability to confront the threat from the Islamic militant group. Yeah, the bombing was claimed by the Pakistani Taliban militia, which is known as TTP. Uh, they said the attack was carried out to avenge the death of a former leader, though many people are outraged that they committed this brazen attack on a mosque while people were praying uh, especially given that they claim to be this devout group. The Pakistani government has actually been hoping for help from the Afghan Taliban, the neighboring Afghan Taliban, which now control that country, to help them rein in the Pakistani Taliban, but so far have not received the help and uh, assistance that they thought they might get from uh, the leadership over in Kabul. Like the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistani branch is looking for more Islamic fundamentalist laws in Pakistan, there are elements of them that, of course, want to take over the entire government, similar to what happened in Afghanistan. Right now, this all comes as Pakistan has been dealing with a lot of economic duress in the country, and some feel within the country that they're distracted right now from dealing with, right now, a new emerging threat of terrorism in the country. Wait, Mosh, because I know you're a human encyclopedia. <laughs> why, why would the Pakistani government expect that the Taliban in Afghanistan would help them rein in the Taliban in Pakistan. So as we know, Jill, in this neck of the woods, in this part of the world, there's a lot of like frenemy situations going on. And what happens here is that Pakistan um, obviously is not very close to the Taliban, but has to learn to deal with them in Afghanistan. So they effectively kind of open economic ties, uh, transportation. They do give some economic aid and help the Afghan Taliban to a certain extent, because again, they're the reality on the ground there. So they're hoping that basically in exchange for helping the Afghan Taliban, that the Afghan Taliban would then help the Pakistani government deal with the Pakistani Taliban. 
But again, uh, no help there. But again, it's a very complicated situation in that part of the world. I got it at um, Frenemies. <laughs> From CBS News, we learned Tuesday that FBI agents searched the office that President Biden used after his vice presidency in Washington, D.C. in mid-November after his lawyers first discovered classified documents there earlier that month. The White House and Biden's personal attorneys had not previously disclosed the search of the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement Even as they faced weeks of questions about the discovery of classified records, Biden's lawyers cooperated fully with the search and the Justice Department did not issue a search warrant. Biden's team also worked with the Justice Department in a later FBI search of his Wilmington, Delaware home, for which it also did not issue a warrant. It is the latest revelation in the slow drip of information that we're learning about the several dozen classified documents that Biden apparently had at home and his office following his tenure as vice president. This news could not be breaking any more slowly and more annoying (laughs) for the Biden camp. This is the slowest drip job. (laughs) And it actually and it actually like makes things feel worse than they are, especially since we don't know what the state of these documents are. And the archives didn't even know that these documents were missing. So there's questions as to how serious these documents were, Jill. So just to recap here for everybody, there's the office in D.C., the office in Delaware, the garage in Delaware, three different locations. And now between the attorney searches and FBI searches, there have been five different rounds of searching that have taken place. Um, at all these locations. Attorney General Merrick Garland, as we've told you last month, appointed a special counsel to investigate all of this. But as you noted, Jill, just this slow drip of information, terrible, terrible (laughs) optics for the White House here, Um, especially, you know, the FBI effectively has done two raids on former Biden locations in just the past three months. Again, you know, a notable headline. Jill, before we leave Washington in the next story, a couple other things we're watching out of there in the next couple of days. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy is meeting with the president today for a big meeting on the debt ceiling. The White House wants Congress to increase the debt ceiling that effectively allows the country to have more than $31.4 trillion in debt. That's where the debt ceiling is right now. We hit that last month, though uh, apparently we can keep paying our bills till June, they think. The big debate here is the White House wants Republicans to raise the debt ceiling, no strings attached, like they've done in the past, especially under President Trump. Republicans are saying, not so fast, President Biden. We actually want you to make some spending concessions. So that'll be the crux of the meeting they're having today. So not much is expected to come out of today's meeting. And then finally, Jill, we have an update from Capitol Hill on your congressman, George Santos. There we go. That's the sound (laughs) effect. That's, that's, That's when you know we have Santos news. He announced yesterday that he is temporarily stepping down, temporarily, his words, stepping down from his two congressional committees. That was the day after he met with Speaker McCarthy. He was assigned to two fairly low profile committees, the House Committee on Small Business and the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology. Either way, Nevertheless, he announced Tuesday, uh, as he faces calls to resign, multiple investigations, questions about his past, who he worked for, who he is, what's his name, what's his family history, (laughs) all of it, a myth, all of it unclear. He has not answered questions about any of it. Uh, He says he's going to concentrate on clearing his name and working for his constituents, just like you, Jill, and uh, is going to focus fully on that and not sit on his committee assignments, at least not for now. Meanwhile, some new numbers came out. They show that 78 percent of voters in the third congressional district 
want Santos to resign. And that's about 89% of Democrats and 72% of independents and 71% of Republicans. There's 13% who do not want him to step down. This is according to this Newsday Santa <laughs> College poll. Who are those 13%? Well, is Jill, my you live you live in the district. Do you want to go door to door and find? Because <laughs> that effectively, if that poll is accurate, that means one out of 10 of your neighbors thinks Santos is a great congressman or at least doesn't want him to step down. If that really is his name. Jill will have an update tomorrow after she goes door to door in her community. Okay, from the AP, Boeing bids farewell to an icon. It's delivering its final 747 jumbo jet. Since its first flight in 1969, the giant yet graceful 747 has served as a cargo plane, a commercial aircraft capable of carrying nearly 500 passengers, a transport for NASA's space shuttles, and the Air Force One presidential aircraft. It revolutionized travel connecting international cities that had never before had direct routes and helping democratize passenger flight. But over about the past 15 years, Boeing and its European rival Airbus have introduced more profitable and fuel-efficient wide-body planes with only two engines to maintain instead of the 747's four. The final plane is the 1,574th built by Boeing in Washington State, The last one was delivered to the cargo carrier Atlas Air on Tuesday. You would recognize the 747 for that iconic hump it had, that second floor uh, that you could take a staircase up to if you uh, had status or were in first or business class, depending on the airline you were traveling. It first entered into service in 1970 for the uh, classic airline Pan Am that has since gone out of business for its New York to London route. Though its timing was terrible at the time, it came amid the oil crisis and the early 70s recession, an updated model, the 747-400, arrived in the late 80s. It had much better timing. It was adopted by dozens of airlines around the world. Uh, Delta was the last airline here in the U.S. to use the 747 for passenger flights. That ended back in 2017. There are still some international carriers uh, where if you buy a ticket, you might sit on a 747 these days. Lufthansa, Korean Air, and Air China all still use it. The air parent at Boeing is called the 777X, though that's not going to be ready till 2025. In the meantime, if you're taking those major international flights, you're probably uh, going on an Airbus plane or the Boeing 767 or 787. Jill, I'm kind of a plane geek. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) From the Wall Street Journal at the gym, high intensity is out. Sculpt is in. Fewer people are resuming high-intensity exercises as they go back to in-person fitness classes, according to trainers, instructors, and other fitness professionals. Instead, more are doing gentler exercise, such as yoga or walking, and giving priority to strength training and mobility over quick calorie burning and weight loss. HIT took off in the mid-2010s as a way for busy people to burn a high number of calories in short periods and remain popular early in the pandemic. But that is changing. Overall exercise bookings at ClassPass, a subscription-based fitness platform, rose 91% between 2021 and 22 as in-person classes resumed. Bookings for sculpt classes, including Pilates, yoga, and strength training, that jumped by 280%. Meanwhile, HIT class bookings rose a bit more slowly at only 59%. Yeah, according to the American College of Sports Medicine, they ask exercise professionals around the country to rank the most popular fitness trends. Uh, Hit high interval training was number one or number two uh, for a number of years, recent years, and then has fallen out of the top five in 2022. 
Jill, the Wall Street Journal did a deep dive here talking to a bunch of personal trainers on this trend line. And one of them was quoted as saying, what people want, we can accomplish the same or better results with less trauma on the body. It might just take a little bit longer. Jill, I found this quote interesting from one other fitness director at a gym called Lifetime. They said, coming out of the pandemic, there's been a big shift from how do you look to how do you feel, which may be speaking to this high interval changeover back to sculpt. Do you have a preference? I used to be all about the high intensity. Mm-hmm. I think just as I'm getting older, I get hurt. I, I literally get injured when I do that stuff. So now I do much more of the strength training and the Pilates type of workouts. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like it was a, it was a whole trend line with like Tybo. Was Tybo part of that? I think Going so. back like 20 yeah. years. Do you ever get those DVDs? I got them and I, I never used them. I was, I loved, I, I used to work out all the time on DVDs. <laughs> there you I go, did P90X. I loved P90X. Oh, P90X. Yeah. That P90X was a huge thing. I think that was another DVD that I never quite put into <laughs> the DVD player. That's your elder millennial reference of the day, everybody. Okay, from NBC News, can't say no to sweets and snacks. It could be a sign of food addiction. About one in eight adults over 50 had signs of food addiction, according to new survey results from the University of Michigan. The survey focused on highly processed foods, sweets, starchy foods like white bread, salty snacks, fatty foods, and sugary drinks. The researchers looked at the responses to statements like, I tried and failed to cut down on or stop eating certain foods. 19% said this happened two or three times a week. Or I had such a strong urge to eat certain foods, I couldn't think of anything else. 24% of respondents said that this happened once a week. One of the researchers said the ability of these foods to trigger the core classic signs of addiction is on par with what we see with alcohol and tobacco in this older population. But they also think that's true of younger populations as well. Yeah, researchers believe that these ultra-processed foods, which are high in fats, sugar, and salt, actually tap into the brain's reward system, triggering a dopamine rush, which is the same chemical that makes people feel pleasure uh, when they get enough food, uh, have sex, or even use certain drugs. Another component of these foods, Jill, is that companies strip out fiber and water, which makes it easier for people to consume large quantities without ever feeling satiated. Because when you eat fiber or eat water, you get fuller faster. So that's one way they addict you and, and get you to eat so much of this. One interesting debate here in reading the NBC story is that even though the report highlights the fact that some people have a really hard time controlling themselves with certain foods, the idea that people are actually addicted in a a medical way to the food is still somewhat controversial. It's not an accepted diagnosis right now at this time. So you can look for that to continue to be sort of a a debate here in the medical community as to whether you can actually be addicted to to sugary and ultra-processed foods. All right, Jill, I've missed you for the segment the last couple days, but you're here for On This Day. Any singing without me, Mosh? I would have to listen back. I don't know. You know, it's like you do the podcast by yourself. You're kind of just going through the motions, talking to yourself, (laughs) etc. So let's begin here with a couple birthday mentions. Actor Paulie Shore. You might remember him from Son-in-Law, Encino Man. He had a good run there in the early 90s, Jill. He is 55 years old today. Wow. Michael C. Hall, a.k.a. Dexter, is 52. Lauren Conrad... Of the Hills and Laguna Beach, 37. Harry Styles is only 29 years old. I found that almost hard to believe. He's accomplished so much already in his career, Jill. Depressing. Speaking of other entertainers who've accomplished a whole hell of a lot in their 20s, Sophie Turner 
the Queen of the North from Game of Thrones and Mrs. Joe Jonas is 27 years old today, Jill. Okay, slightly hard turn here, but an important historical note, especially as we begin Black History Month. On this day, 63 years ago, four students sat down at a lunch counter at a Woolworths in downtown Greensboro. Uh, That sit-in was hugely important in the civil rights movement. The official policy at the time at Woolworths was to refuse service to anyone but white customers. Denied service, the four young men refused to give up their seats. Police arrived on the scene, but the Greensboro Four, as they became known, stayed put until the store closed, then returned the next day with even more students from local colleges. The sit-in movement then soon began to spread to college towns across the South. On this day, 20 years ago in 2004, uh, tragedy struck over the skies of Texas as the U.S. space shuttle Columbia broke up catastrophically uh, about 40 miles uh, above Earth, killing all seven crew members aboard. Mosh, I actually remember that. It's one of those few moments where, at least for me, I remember where I was, what I was doing, and just watching that coverage. Heartbreaking. And finally, Jill, since yesterday we marked Justin Timberlake's birthday in On This Day, it's only fair that today we mark one of his biggest controversies. On this day, February 1st, 2004, the infamous Super Bowl halftime show uh, starring Timberlake and Janet Jackson took place that exposed Janet's breast for nine sixteenths of a second. Uh, That was at Super Bowl 38, ignited a media firestorm. Some called it a wardrobe malfunction. Some called it Nipplegate. In the aftermath, though, and this has been a hugely controversial thing in history, Janet Jackson was disinvited from the Grammy Awards. Uh, Her career stalls for a while. While Timberlake then performed at the subsequent Grammy Awards, uh, his career flourished. There was an FCC investigation, a fine initially levied to CBS for uh, that nudity, for that very ever so brief nudity. I think CBS ended up fighting back on it, never paying a fine. Timberlake later apologized just a couple of years ago, actually. For her part, Janet has not spoken about it or did not speak about it for many, many years. Finally, there's a documentary last year where she said that the entire thing was blown out of proportion. It was an accident that should not have happened. Everyone was looking for someone to blame, and that's got to stop. Justin and I are very good friends, and we will always be very good friends. So that's what she said about this last year. Allegedly, what was supposed to happen, he was supposed to pull away a rubber bustier to reveal a bra. But of course, there was a wardrobe malfunction, and everything was revealed. I'm glad you mentioned, Mosh, that her career stalled and his really accelerated because we were talking about this last week, I think, with the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal, where Monica Lewinsky was somehow made to be the villain in the story and Clinton was just fine. It's one of those things that I think that if this quote unquote wardrobe malfunction happened today, I don't think it would have played the same. There was definitely bias. There's definitely gender bias there that that played out here. Uh, and, you know, we we've seen it with a number of these stories that took place, you know, sort of. Um, I mean, not even that long ago, Jill, I mean, through the 2000s. I mean, this was not that long ago, 19 years ago, 2004. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people are pointing the finger of blame at Janet. And, you know, she dealt with a lot of the wrath afterwards for, again, for nine sixteenths of a second of nudity when, you know, it, it's apparent um, in the aftermath that, you know, he was equally, if not more, to blame for what took place there. Apparently, they didn't practice it effectively at the halftime show. Again, because the two of them didn't really talk about it much in the aftermath of it. We never quite got the full story. But I imagine in the aftermath of that, they've uh, spent some extra time preparing for Super Bowl halftime shows. And there is one coming up very soon, Jill, with Rihanna 
a week from Sunday. Which I am very excited for. Um, but Mosh, we are out of time here. A big thank you to everybody for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Appreciate all those reviews, especially those five-star reviews. Thanks to all of you who uh, continue to uh, tell friends and family about the podcast. Love hearing all the feedback. Don't forget to follow us, of course, over on Instagram as well, at Mosh, at M-O-S-H-E-H, for the latest and greatest 24-7. And we'll see everyone back here tomorrow. Jill, good to have you back. Thanks, Mosh. Bye, everyone. Bye.